You're listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast focused on Germany, the United States, and the transatlantic relationship. Join us as we discuss economics, politics, security, and more. I'm Jeff Rafke, president of the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Welcome, everyone, to this uh, end-of-year episode of The Zeitgeist. Uh, we're recording on December 20th. 2022. And uh, we thought we would take a little bit of a look back at the most significant things um, uh, that uh, Germany, the transatlantic relationship and the US and Germany together have experienced. And in particular, what the, you know, which are going to mark the in shape the year to come. So uh, we are uh, joined uh, today by uh, Klaus-Dieter Frankenberger, a non-resident senior fellow here at AICGS. Klaus, uh, thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And um, my colleague, Eric Langenbacher, who is a senior fellow and director of our Society, Culture and Politics program. Welcome, Eric. As always, a pleasure. So uh, as I look at uh, 2022, I see a few things. Of course, the war, uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine um, has had an effect on almost everything. Um, that's been a reckoning of sorts for Germany's uh, politics, for Germany's foreign and security policy, but also for its uh, its economic model. I also see resilience in terms of the determination uh, and preparedness of German public opinion, the German public, to endure uh, hardships uh, that have arisen. Uh, but I also see uh, major challenges for Germany and its leadership role. But Eric, I'm going to turn to you first and and uh, hear your your thoughts on the most significant thing in 2022. Thanks, Jeff. Well, first off, if I can kind of transport ourselves back to December 2021, uh, I think that it's safe to say that 2022 was not the year that we thought it was going to be. Right, about a year ago is exactly when this new. Um, novel three-party coalition, the traffic light coalition of SPD, Greens, and FDP, or liberals, uh, was just coming into power. They had an ambitious, a very kind of forward-looking coalition agreement that had been laboriously negotiated over the preceding weeks um, in the aftermath of the 2021 Bundestag election. And um, we, we just thought they would start to implement this, this agenda. But instead, what, about six weeks, two months after they came to power, everything changed with Putin's invasion of Ukraine. And as you noted, that has had a ripple effect on basically all aspects of German domestic and foreign policy. And I have to say that the, the government, the coalition has taken a hit, right? So if you look at the most current polling um, as of today, uh, one poll had the SPD at 19, same as the Greens, the FTP at seven, which means that the current coalition doesn't have majority support, at least according to these public opinion polls. And actually for months, they've been hovering between 45 and 46% of the vote, according to polls. So I think that's kind of an interesting thing to note. The Christian Democrats from the, I guess, late spring, early summer have been the number one party polling between 27, 28%. But it's also interesting that they haven't been able to uh, break through that kind of ceiling either. Um, but what's interesting also is, you know, despite all the challenges that this government has had, 
despite the inflation, which of course has been a big issue. Just in the last couple of weeks, it seems that the government has started to recover a little bit uh, of favorability amongst the German population. And in fact, uh, a majority, 56%, think that, you know, all things considered, uh, the work of the chancellor and the government is uh, uh, good or rather good. And only 38% think it's bad or rather bad. So they have kind of recovered a little bit. It's also interesting if you look at the concerns that Germans have. This is in early December. And according to Forschungsgruppe Wallen, um, energy is still the number one concern, about 45%. But what's interesting is that, you know, the whole issue complex of inflation, costs, prices has actually plummeted by 10%. And only 31% of Germans think that's one of the top issues. And then you have the uh, uh, war in Ukraine as the third most important issue that's been about a quarter of the electorate for uh, the last little while. So I don't know. It's interesting to just track the vicissitudes of support for this government. Um, but they've, you know, they took their hit in the spring and summer. Things have kind of stabilized for about six months since then. But it seems like there's a little bit of um, recovery just as of late. But it certainly isn't the mood that uh, one had back in December of last year. Klaus. Well, our thank you, Eric, for laying out the the frame which we now want to fill with with more detail and uh, details and other observations i think you are right the government has been a little bit on a roller coaster um recovering a little bit here we have almost capsized in early summer when their energy policies flip-flopped and the, the government was accused of amateurish incompetence and so forth this has subsided somewhat. And I think you are right to uh, to point at the fact that the public opinion has also recovered a little bit in favor of of, of the government. Let me just, in, in, uh, from my perspective, just make a, lay down a little bit are some of the markers I think are important. First of all, this is the first time, as you said, we have an ample coalition on the national level. We've had experiments in, in some, some states, some lender, but this is the first time ever. A jury is still out. If it's going to work so far, the big conflicts have not erupted. The, the government has not collapsed. Uh, and, of course, the major hit all of us have been taking on, on February 24th has are, you know, really, really... Are, found the government off guard. The Zeitenwende is a major thing in, in German history and in German policy. Historically, uh, it is on a par with major events in the history of the Federal Republic. Uh, Federal Republic. Um, politically, it is an indictment of past failures, major failures in security and foreign policy, the relationship to Europe. Just one metaphor Today, it's common wisdom. Security is not with Russia, but security for us is against Russia. All the politicians of the past, SPD, CDU, the, the, the Christian Democrats, the liberals, then the, the Greens. The Greens were a little bit more skeptical, I, 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 I happily admit, are, but the rest always with Russia. Now, this is history. There are pockets of still 
those who are say no we need russia as uh, the ma- the major european power to come forward with a, a secure architecture that provides security for everybody each and every country here but the major are the the, the, the new mainstream is um no it's against russia against russia with putin in power with a putin regime are bombarding civilians, Ukraine, demolishing the infrastructure, doing the things that his troops have done in terms of u- mass human rights violations are with this kind of regime, it's impossible to lay out a good, prosperous, and secure future for all of us. Now, eventually, the, chicken, the chickens have come home to roost when it, um, when it comes to the state of the Bundeswehr. We just recently, a few days ago, a new episode in our tanks don't, uh, don't, don't work, planes don't fly, ships don't uh, set sail. You heard uh, that during our uh, war games exercise, 18 our cougars fell apart. Didn't work. Now, this, this is, is the, the new the new um, infantry fighting vehicle, the Puma. Our, it's something between our major fighting vehicle, major battle tank, and the old APCs. But the high, state of the art thing, at least that's what what the government, everybody else, thought they would be, and it's designated to the to the NATO special forces next year. So this is a major major embarrassment for all of us. But it epitomizes the state the state of the Bundeswehr allegedly. During the Zeitwende, one of the legacies of the Zeitwende should be, first of all, the legacy was of the past, the dismal state of the armed forces, a, a foreign policy that did not that did ignore the threat posed by Russia. And now we have the government is tasked and mandated to correct major, major mistakes and failures. The Bundeswehr process to modernize are it's a long process. It's not exclusively the, the fault of this of this government. It's the fault of a series of governments, but it will take a, 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 I don't know how many years to make this to make major corrections. In foreign policy, eventually, are it's clear now who the threat is. It is clear that we have to work with the United States more clearly, I would think, than for a long time, than for a long time, and eventually, the business community has learned are a, a major lesson don't tie your your fortunes to a dictatorship or a, an autocracy unfortunately unfortunately some of the flagship compass, companies are about to make this mistake again when it comes to china all in all i would say with the turmoil are on the energy in the energy sector with the turmoil in on climate change with the turmoil in the business community the year ends of i would say a three minus as we would say in germany it could have been worse and the recession the recession is not as bad as some or many economy economists had predicted mm-hmm. so uh, i i want to uh, you you mentioned uh, the uh the uh word Zeitenwende, the the change in Germany's uh, security and defense policy. And I want to pick up two aspects of that, uh, which we've been focused on here a bit over the last couple of weeks, 
Uh, I would refer any listeners to a couple of webinars, including with the uh, the state secretary in the defense ministry, Simcha Miller. Uh, and what strikes me is this uh, contrast between the responsibility um, that that Germany uh, clearly uh, either <laughs> aspires to or recognizes is uh, is a necessity. Um, here I would quote uh, a speech from the defense minister, uh, Christina Lambrecht, from just a couple of months ago. She said, um, in translation, Germany's size, its geographical situation, its economic power, in short, its clout, makes us, Germany, a leading power, whether or not we want to be one, militarily as well. And I think this uh, this captures uh, something, especially the ambivalence, uh, whether Germany wants to be or not. And, and so we see the struggle here. Uh, on the one hand, uh, Germany has... on the eastern flank across the entire eastern flank of nato and and that is not to be uh, underestimated in another way you see germany taking uh, practical steps uh with this so-called european sky shield to strengthen air defense uh in europe and attracting many other countries i think if a total of 15 countries are participating um in that initiative so you see germany um moving to address a recognized uh, shortfall. Um, at the same time, you see the slow uh, spending uh, rate for the uh, defense fund, which uh, Chancellor Schultz uh, famously called uh, into life uh, on February 27th uh, in his uh, major speech to the Bundestag. Um, and you see, as you were saying, Klaus, this uh, difficulty in the practical um, uh, on the practical technical side of of equipment that is not functioning up to standard. So I think this uh, these contrasts between growing ambitions and the difficulty of delivery uh, are going to uh, remain with us if we look ahead. And they've certainly been uh, a major uh, factor in the uh, the reaction uh, to to the war in Ukraine. It's of course not only for just one sentence. It's not only. The gap, the gap, or the, in your words, the ambivalence between aspirations, growing ambitions on the one hand, and uh, and the facts on the ground, which are at times miserable, at times bureaucratic processes uh, work their way into the system, or simply are you know wavering, shyness, or and so forth. It's of course also the the, the discrepancy between expectations by our partners, by our friends, and what we are willing and able to to deliver. You know, you mentioned uh, Christina Lambrecht forcefully, you know, claiming for a leadership role. A few years ago, we had Ursula von der Leyen, who was in, in, the, in the early tense, the defense secretary, and saying, we are leading from behind. I mean, this is a good as, as From absurd. the middle, from the middle. Sometimes she said also from behind. Uh, this is absurd as it gets. I mean, either you lead or you do, do not lead. And frankly, I thought there was a moment a few months ago, uh, the the tension has subsided somewhat uh, when when um, the French president, Emmanuel Macron, said in no uncertain terms, I'm very much afraid that our, that Germany is growing is growingly isolating itself in the EU, in Europe, and in NATO. Now, this was a wake-up call for a lot of people, uh, 
on the one hand, are making clear how bad at this, situ- at this point in time the Franco-German relationship were, but a general sense that Germany goes it alone, sometimes forcefully, sometimes not so forcefully, in energy, in military terms, but it is sometimes acting alone, and this is not good. It's not good for us. It's not good for our friends. Uh, it may be good for our opponents, frankly, but uh, because the division tactics work, uh, but this is the major challenge for uh, for the government in the new year to to close the gap and to get a more coherent strategy uh, or when it comes to German leadership or co-leadership with France or the US, US of course, and others. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I think there's a real challenge there, which is, of course, the relationship with France is crucial in, in so many respects, including from a defense industrial point of view, where Germany and France both have invested heavily and remain heavily uh, invested. Um, but that is clearly insufficient uh, to, to deal with the security challenges uh, on the European unions and on NATO's eastern um, border and and so there's a need for additional new uh, bridging uh, coalitions to to address the sense of vulnerability uh, which is much greater in warsaw vilnius uh, riga bucharest than it is in berlin or paris um eric i'm going to turn back uh, to you because you know you you mentioned um the the struggles that Olaf Scholz's government has has had and the, it seems to crystallize for me in two two numbers uh, from recent uh, public opinions on one hand there's about a 30% approval uh, rating for uh, the government um and uh, but at the same time when asked um whether they had confidence that a government led by the CDU CSU would do better in dealing with these challenges a majority said no so is this simply a, a situation where people recognize um, uh, the world is tough, um, uh, we've we've got to muddle through, and maybe we're unhappy with it, but we don't really uh, have a have a sense of of a change of of political momentum. You know, Jeff, that's a great kind of um, a question. And um, I, I personally have not been super impressed with Friedrich Merz and his kind of leadership of the CDU. I feel like, you know, they they don't have as strong a profile as an alternative to this government as they could. It also seems that, you know, some of the tactical decisions they've made have not led to greater support from voters, right? So like, let's not forget that, you know, there has been a domestic political agenda uh, of this government um, one of the big things that they did was to implement this new citizen money, I guess, Bürgergeld. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that was held up in the German second chamber, the Bundesrat, by the CDU there. And I, so I, I just, I, I don't understand some of the decisions that they're making and why it's so hard for them to, I don't know, create a an alternative vision uh, for German voters. And I think that's one of the reasons that they, they've been kind of stuck in the polls. You know, the other thing too that we shouldn't forget is that, Bavaria has a big election coming up in less than a year in fall of 2023. And, um, you know, that's also going to siphon some kind of attention away from more of a national kind of agenda for the two uh, union parties. The other thing, too, that that we should mention uh, in this regard, and this is something that I have to admit is starting to concern me a little bit more. 
And that is that, uh, you know, I don't want to, I don't know if I'd call them anti-system parties per se, but certainly the outside of the mainstream parties, especially AFD have not tanked. Right. And, and, and just when, you know, the governing parties kind of fell in the pools in the late spring, early summer is when the AFD kind of surged back and they're now at 13 to 15, sometimes 16% in the polls. So this alternative for Germany is quite um, uh, still a force to be reckoned with. Uh, the Linke, everybody had written the Linke off, the left party, um, and certainly they're hovering around the 5% threshold to get representation, but that's certainly better than 3%, 2%, and everything like that. And then mm. let's also not forget that there's almost, there's not between 7 and and 9% of the population that's choosing other parties. So when you start to tabulate that, you're talking about a quarter of the German electorate that is not okay with any of the kind of mainstream, like democratic pro-system uh, parties right now. So well, I, I, that, that those those are both interesting points, but I, I want to go back to the CDU thing first. Um, and I wonder, you know, is if we think about the, the life cycle of a legislative term, you know, four years, um, and uh, keep in mind the the long struggle within the CDU and in the union parties uh, with along with the CSU to uh, to find a leader that enjoyed the confidence of the membership and a chancellor candidate. Uh, I mean, there there was a series of of extremely difficult and in some cases disastrous uh, moves since 2018. Uh, until this year, um, if you look at it in those terms, has uh, maybe Merz has uh, has done all right because he's got a party that is no longer fractious. Uh, that's easier to do when you're in opposition, naturally, and you've got someone to um, focus your energies against. Um, but you know, I agree with you that they haven't articulated an alternative vision for uh, perhaps in a comprehensive way, but maybe they've got time for that. What do you think? Well, you, you're asking me, Jeff? Uh, either either of you. Yeah, I, I think our, you are right. Um, let's not forget that our Olaf Scholz has become chancellor of the Federal Republic because the CDU choose to self-destruct, to self-destroy themselves. That's what they successfully did are in, in 21. Now with a new leader, Friedrich Merz, old time politician are from the old Federal Republic has taken over and he's, I would say he's doing as best as his mo uh, at the moment as, as he can, given his own personality, given his own politics, are the darling of the right, whom he had uh, uh, disappointed at some point, at some time, uh, very bitterly um, and then where are we today we face the most brutal war in Europe now for any opposition leader uh, since, since our World War II any opposition leader or who claims to be our chancellor in reserve so to speak to be ready and able to take over to, uh, tomorrow or whenever need be are, has to present himself as a responsible leader. He cannot criticize, and he has, he has criticized Schultz harshly and bitterly, and for, for us who have now experienced 
grand coalitions, I, I would say for decades, this is a, a, also an innovation of sort that we have now in our position to be reckoned with. On the other hand, he cannot present himself as being disloyal, illoyal all the time, criticizing the government to, or, you know, to do what it has to do. And a lot of the things that it has to do is bad legacies of grand coalitions are, who, were, who, were, who were chaired by Angela Merkel, chancellor for 16 years, leader of the CDU, by the way. Now, a lot of them is... so. That's a very difficult um, a, a balancing act he has to do has to do, and I'm not surprised at all that he is not that his popularity and the popularity of the CDU is not skyrocketing any uh, within a year or so. Probably the times for skyrocketing catch-all parties is over anyhow, actually. And the fragmentation um, Eric alluded to, it's the fragmentation we see in every and each other European country, except for the two, or for a country like the UK that has a, a different electoral system. But mm -hmm. all the others who are a parliamentary system, you see all the same. Now, the, the Danes form of government, I don't know. I don't know of how many parties. Uh, uh, old opponents come together, merge, remerge, disunite, unite again. Italy and the rest are the old party system in France. Uh, has totally disappeared with right-wing rivals en masse to challenge for, um, um, Emmanuel Macron. And the same thing happens a little bit. And let me say our, a word about the AFD. You know, when we spoke last time, a few months ago, on this program, we were really, we we're actually fearing that this would be not just a winter of discontent, but a winter of rage. This has not, it has not come to this and it will not come to this. One reason, because, you know, our, the government you know, turned off the shower of financial support. Whoop, whoop, whoop. So it, the, the frustration level has been uh, down, has, has uh, come, went south by the public. That's one reason why the public, after all, is not so unhappy with the government at the moment as some. The big protest in East Germany in particular, you know, have come down to a dwindle. Still a couple of hundred out on the street, but not tenth of thousand. Had never been and will not happen anymore, anytime soon. And what, you know, really warms my heart to, to some extent is the fact that we, that by and large, the support the public has expressed at the beginning of the war for Ukraine and Ukrainians has not fundamentally dissipated. Not at all. Not at all. It has went down a little bit. This is to be expected. Are a lot of communities that have our local communities that were dealt that have dealt with incoming refugees, both from Ukraine, but also from the or from from the Balkans and from the Middle East, are over flooding at the moment again in a type of Nine, uh, 2015 wave, they have to handle this. And even then, the, the, the level of support for the Ukraine is still remarkably high, I find. Mm -hmm. And this is something I take personal, if I may say so, or pride of. Pride mm -hmm. um, Eric, you, the, other, the other point you made that I, I, I find intriguing is the, um, the, the observation of essentially anti-system 
um, political support. Um, if, if you take the 15% the AFD has in the polls now, you add the 5% for D-Linka, you can, you know, not to say the parties are comparable uh, necessarily. And then you've got uh, voters for, for other parties. Um, but that sort of 20 to 25% range, has that been roughly constant? um over over time or do you see that do you see that growing um it's a good question uh there are ebbs and flows right earlier in the year and especially you know fall 2021 i don't think we were as concerned i think everybody um breathed a big sigh of relief when the afd lost support in the 2021 bundestag election and the linka were under five percent but you know still made it into the bundestag thanks to the idiosyncrasies of german electoral laws so i think back then we thought that the high tide of that kind of anti-system protest had passed and for the beginning of the year that was also the case but since the summer these parties have kind of come back so i don't know um I wish we could proclaim the end of this kind of like populist, whether it's right populist or left populist moment. I was just reading something that said that all the troubles of Donald Trump in the last uh, couple of weeks show that the you know populist fever has broken. But I've heard that a million times before. So uh, I don't know. It's also, I think, the case that no politician and no you know think tanker or academic has come up with the magic solution for how to kind of combat this kind of sentiment. Um, I'm really interested in uh, Klaus Dieter's observations on how, you know, basically the center's held, right? And you don't have the kind of protests and you don't have the kind of backlash to refugees that you had back in 2015, 2016. You don't have, um, you know, the radicals on the street and their tens of thousands. So I'm just wondering, Klaus Dieter, what you think is the reason behind things kind of um, uh, being maintained? And if you think that this is going to continue in the new year, especially as this war in Ukraine continues. Well, um, let me make it clear that on a local level, you see a lot of concern that the authorities are overwhelmed. And eventually we come to a situation which is not uh, to be handled anymore. Uh, that's clear. But we have not seen the mass protest. That's that's also true because this, for the simple reason that the majority of the, the those who have uh, the, the migrants and refugees were until this fall, I would say, coming from Ukraine. And you would not pull, bring them back. You would not. They would not steer the same level of animosity, not none whatsoever. Actually, there was still a kind of welcome culture uh, at play, uh, the same kind of welcome culture we had seen or seven years, six years before, for some time, some time. I would say are to mobilize against Ukrainian our migrants and refugees is a very difficult time in light of what we see each day, each night, each morning on television. You know, Russians shell the hell out of, of Ukrainian uh, cities and women and children leave. I mean, the, uh, the, you cannot say, no, nah, you should. Nobody would, who, have, who hadn't lost his mind, would be uh, mobilizing for street protest at that situation, tactically, I would say, if ever. Though the, the Linker and the AfD have, uh, have their pockets where their arguments, pro Russian arguments, are resonating well. But beyond that, there is a almost a cordon sanitaire that not, does not spill over. People, Question the wisdom of sanctions, but this is a legitimate thing. 
people questioned the, the the legitimacy or the wisdom of sending our uh, sending arms to Ukraine. This is also a thing, are um, as a legitimate debate in any democracy. But to go beyond that and are put in question the whole approach of providing solidarity to the Ukraine as best and as good as we can. This is not this consensus. I would say is not shaken. It, it, it does not erode to the point where it will not be untenable. The the numbers you gave us early, um, early Eric, would suggest that this government is not the most popular. And I would say I would agree that's true. Or that is the case. You know, the Greens, the climate, the transformation of the of the economy and society, the whole thing. It costs more money. Energy situation, the inflation thing. A lot of things. You know, merging together. And on the other other hand, uh, which had captured our, so I was to speak, our emotions for, for more than a year, almost a year now, are the war in the Ukraine. The attitude has not shifted very much, I would say. The candles are still lit in church. Are the, the, the flags are still flying high here in small communities, in big towns, wherever. So the sentiment is still there. And that um, gives me confidence that if the government decided to do so, this whole modernization with the Bundeswehr, the whole Zeitenwende approach to foreign policy, particularly with the, our partners in the East and Russia, will, um, will continue. Okay. Well, uh, on that note, let me just point out um, our first podcast of this year um, was uh, back in January, and it was uh, titled, Why Does Russia Want to Roll Back Europe Europe's Political and Security Architecture? Conversation I had with uh, John Kornblum, former U.S. ambassador to Germany and uh, longstanding observer of uh, transatlantic relationship. We've done 23 episodes of this podcast this year, uh, many of them uh, devoted to to these topics of the future of the transatlantic security order. Um, and uh, I just want to uh, say thank you to uh, Eric and to Klaus for being part of so many of them. And thanks to all of our listeners for, uh, for following uh, us and uh, being part of this conversation. We've got a lot to look forward ahead toward in 2023. And we'll do that with a, a new episode uh, in January. Uh, I think Klaus, uh, you're going to join us again and Eric uh, as well. And we'll have uh, plenty of uh, things. Maybe we'll even uh, you know, put people on the spot with some predictions that we will assess uh, at the end uh, of 2023 and see how our uh, predictive uh, uh, skills um, uh, are. Well, with that, uh, I want to uh, say thanks again, Eric. Thank you. And uh, let's also not forget that we're now saying goodbye to the very difficult year of 2022 and also the 39th year of AICGS. So we're also looking forward to our 40th anniversary in just a, a couple of weeks. But happy holidays to everybody. More to come Thank on you. that. You too. And, and thanks, Klaus. Yes. Thanks, Klaus, for being with us. Uh, wishing everyone a, uh, a an enjoyable and peaceful end uh, to the year and looking forward to being with you again on the next episode of The Zeitgeist. Thanks for listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast produced by the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Send us your feedback by email to info at AICGS.org or catch us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at AICGS. Don't forget to check out AICGS.org for more information from today's episode. Auf Wiederhören!